want to say thank you for listening. So our sponsors have given some great deals in this episode. Check these out. This episode of The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And RescueSwimmershop.com, official high-quality apparel featuring the silhouette. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, longline, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment. All you got to do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com. Mention this podcast, The Real Rescue Podcast, and they'll take care of the rest. 15 years ago, photographer and Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 526, Chris Razok, created an iconic photograph. This photograph depicted the silhouette of a helicopter rescue swimmer reaching down for an outstretched hand in need against the American flag backdrop. The image went viral and became a symbol worldwide for the rescue community and the people they helped. Its wild popularity inspired Chris to launch RescueSwimmerShop.com, a web store offering official high-quality apparel featuring his evocative image, The Silhouette. T-shirts, hats, patches, and stickers featuring The Silhouette are available at RescueSwimmerShop.com, including the flagship design, So Others May Live. Follow Chris and his story on Instagram with the handle at Rescue Swimmer Shop. And if you are a rescue swimmer, support rescue swimmers, or just tell people you are one at the bar, this gear is definitely for you. When you get to the website, rescueswimmershop.com, enter the promo code, all lowercase, one word, rescue, R-E-S-C-U-E, for 10% off your order. We have another guest joining us from New Zealand. He has a ton of experience with a whole bunch of stories, and he's a huge advocate of crew resource management. I really enjoyed my sit-down with him. I hope you do too. Please welcome my friend, Ernie Bryant. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. 
These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Real Rescue Podcast. Today, I've got with me another good friend of mine, Mr. Paul Ernie Bryant, coming to us from New Zealand. Just so happens you and I know the same guy, Mr. Deeks, Chris Deacon, love the guy. And uh, he actually connected me with you, which is amazing. You are working as a chief crewman for Nelson Marlboro Rescue Helicopter. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Ernie, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Jace. Pleasure to be here. Heck yeah. So for everybody else in the world that doesn't know you, please introduce yourself. <laughs> How long have we got? <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> well, you know what, Ernie? For you, we got as long as you need. <laughs> cool. Uh, so yeah, so... Uh, I'm Paul Bryant. Um, everyone calls me Ernie, which is a, a nickname I, I got in the Air Force on day two, and it's stuck like baby poo to a diaper ever since. So um, either or is fine. What uh, an analogy. Yeah, uh, Thank, thanks for the yeah. analogy. That was pretty good. <laughs> so uh, that's how this podcast is going to go? All right, I'm in. <laughs> listen, I'll try, I'll try and clean it up from here. No way. Yeah, keep it raw. Come on, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I currently work as the uh, chief crewman for the uh, Nelson Marlborough Rescue Helicopter based out of uh, Nelson in New Zealand, which is at the top of the South Island, a beautiful spot. Uh, how did I end up here? Um, in the mid-80s, I joined the New Zealand Air Force in the ground trade. Um, just after my senior course, I was lucky enough to apply and get selected for airman aircrew, which is all your flight engineers, helicopter crewmen, loadmasters, those sorts of things. The helicopter crewman in those days was a very sought-after position and very hard to get into, so I opted to um, to apply for a, a, a loadmaster slot, which I got, and nice. and trained uh, on the Andover aircraft, which is a British transport uh, twin engine. It has the capability of collapsing its undercarriage, so you can load a couple of vehicles in the back. Cool. And, um, and I worked on those uh, for around four years. Um, great. Great aircraft to fly in, young crews. Um, our, our old instructors and the commanding officers were in their 30s, you know, they were so old. <laughs> the uh, salty dogs. The old dogs. And, um, yeah, but it was really, really good. And in amongst that, I also did a, um, on the Andovers, did a, a peacekeeping tour in Somalia in the, in the beginning of 93 during the height of, of their conflict. And um, coming back from that, um, I decided that um, helicopter crewman was really where I wanted to be. So I applied to do a, a trade change, as they called it, and uh, that was successful. And in uh, sort of mid to late 93, I trained as a uh, helicopter crewman or hoist operator, nice. um, machine gunner type thing on the Iroquois helicopters. And for oh, which, are, sorry, I missed out. Which helicopter? On the Iroquois, on the UH-1 Iroquois. Nice. Yeah, so anybody... Anybody who's flying on a UH-1 Iroquois knows exactly what I'm, I'm talking about. They're such a great machine. And uh, that, that sort, of, sort of covered all things um, military, lent to um, uh, winch or hoist operate, down the wires, uh, MVG, all that sort of carry-on. And uh, had, a, had a blast, an absolute blast. It was such good fun. Uh, scary at times, but, but <laughs> yeah, guys. Uh, you know what? I, I get that. I get that. Uh, I've had my scared moments from once or twice. Yeah. I, you know what? I, out of curiosity, give me one. Give me one scary moment just because. Oh, 
Okay, uh, so in a um, at a place called Waiuru, which is the uh, central North Island, it's an army training ground. Uh, we were in a, either three or four ship, can't remember, formation getting ready to take off. We were going to do live, um, live gunnery. So we had live ammunition on board. And the aircraft that I was in, we had all the uh, drum, uh, so the uh, oil drums, 44-gallon drums to be, to be shot at the, the enemy. They were all loaded on board. We were the last aircraft to get airborne. As we got airborne, uh, we got caught in the downwash and the dirty air off the other aircraft. Yeah. So the goes, uh, it's not looking too good. Uh, we'll do a run on landing. So we did a run on landing. That was all good, except that we still had too much momentum to pull up. And there was a ditch with a little bank about three or four feet high. Oh. And we're like, oh, goodness, I wonder what we're going to do next. And Because uh, we're, we're losing all our energy trying to slow down. We've lost road RPM because we're doing a run on landing. And he pulled the collective at the last minute to try and get us up over the top. And the back of the skids <laughs> dug through the, through the um, top of the, the bank, which we felt through the aircraft and then uh, slid onto... Um, land on the other side of it and of course the other two or three aircraft had taken off and like fly around and they look around and here we are sitting in the middle, middle of the, the paddock with the, the engine shutting down and all that sort of carry on so uh, you can imagine that if it had been the toes of the aircraft instead of the hills we'd oh, have yeah. forward and then we're loaded not only with people we're full of fuel we've got live ammunition and, and the whole lot so that's that's <laughs> one of the it's one of a number that spring to mind so holy cow all right so, uh, yeah, so then in, uh, beginning in 1997, the uh, Auckland Rescue Helicopter Trust, um, they didn't advertise, they basically just rang three squadron and said if anybody was interested, there was a position there, and I knew that those slots, uh, so that's your EMS uh, type, type work. Yep. I knew that that would be fairly hard to get into, so I decided that I'd, um, I'd go. I never had a job interview, I just turned up and had a talk to them and said, I can start on this date, and they went, sweet. Pretty much. What? <laughs> That's fantastic. And, oh, that, that's nice. I, yeah, I effectively um, got out of my green overalls on Friday and started in red ones on Monday with very minimal training because I didn't need it. And uh, stayed with the Auckland Rescue Helicopter Trust till 2012 uh, when I moved down to Nelson when they got the BK-117 and they wanted somebody with experience. BK. Um, I like the BK-117. That's a fun aircraft yeah. to fly. It is. They wanted somebody with experience and knowledge to come down and train the new guys. Uh, nobody applied. So uh, they ended up finding me in the, in the corner. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm still here today. So that's, that's, the, that's the path to get there. The wow. Time. Man, that's, that's pretty good. That's yeah. Pretty so, good. So I've, been, um, I've been actively flying as either crew from a loadmaster day through to helicopters um, since 1989, so it's 32 years, which is a long, long time. There's, uh, in New Zealand, there's not a lot of people that have continually flown in a crewed capacity. There are a lot of pilots, but not in a crewed capacity for that that sort of length of time. Yeah. And uh, 28 of those have been in helicopters. So. Wow. Man, good for you. You got me beat. Jeez. That's uh funny. I, you should take over my job right now. You want you want to you can have you can do it. <laughs> um, so, wow, man, you've seen some stuff then. So, yeah, what what brought you to the search and rescue side of things? Like, what you know, you're in the air force, loaded out guns yeah. and ammos. What uh, what brought yeah. you? Up? 
I think I think realistically and deep down was that when I when I first applied to go for him and air crew, I was I was young. I'd only been in the Air Force four and a half years. Yeah. And I got rank very early and I got a lot of responsibility very, very early. So I was a, a qualified sergeant uh, air loadmaster with an aircraft that weighed 53,000 pounds doing loading cars and chucking paratroopers out the door and all that sort of thing. Love it. And I wasn't quite 23. So, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a big responsibility. And clearly, obviously, I had the ability to do that. But uh, what that did is that by the time I actually went through my career as such, I was a couple of ranks ahead of my peers that I joined up with. I'd already been through a ground trade. I'd already been through one aircrew trade and I'd buzzed around in Iroquois helicopters for four years and done over a thousand hours in them. And it, I wouldn't say it all became very ho-hum, but I think I sort of burnt myself a little bit earlier than I, than I should have because I did everything so young. And there was a lot of people that maybe didn't uh, get that opportunity for a few years later and then stayed in that trade and maybe went to a ground trade, ground job for a while and then back flying. But I just continually did it. So I, I think in some ways I'd sort of not burnt out, but I'd done the military thing. I'd done enough. I'd done yeah. enough to, you know, I'd done more than some people ever did in their whole career in 12 years. So yeah. to me, the next um, opportunity to move into the civilian world, and you might get a giggle out of this, was to, was to go to the Auckland Rescue Helicopter Trust where I knew I could sort of seamlessly go in. Yeah. And I told myself at the time, I'll do that for five, for five or six years, and then I'll get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, that's great. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> why, not, why not stay with what you'd love, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, Jason, as, as by default, that's what's happened. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting, interesting path. And it's certainly one I didn't foresee happening um, in the very mid to early 80s, you know, that never dreamed that this would be the reality. So. That's hilarious. And, and you know what is so funny to me is one, because I, I love what I do. I love flying. Like every time I get in the aircraft that we take off, I don't care what aircraft it is. You know, you pull up in that hover, you roll forward, and all of a sudden you're just pulling altitude, and you're like, oh, this is awesome, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I, I still do that, but not to that degree. Oh, I still do. Man, I'm just a kid in a candy store when I get in the back. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, on our recruit course, on our initial training, um, a part of that was to, to do a tramp you know, in the hills. And uh, Iroquois came in, you know, with this grumpy old helicopter crewman who was probably about 26 at the time <laughs> and, and briefed us all. They, they flew us up into the hills and then we'd walk out. And I vividly remember that flight, like that's way back in 1984. But I can remember sitting in that Iroquois with the thing going thump, 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 and the hill going, wow, this is so cool. Well, yeah, how um, did that go one more time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can always tell when you're in an Iroquois and trying to talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but at, at the end of um, 1996, early 1997, that, that enthusiasm wasn't quite the same. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I still enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I just, yeah. so, All right. So do me a favor then. The next time you go flying, just sit into it, 
and just say Jason would be so pumped right now. Quinny would be on top of the world just as you oh, take off. Be like, oh, <laughs> you would be if you see the terrain we fly around. It. Oh, Chris sends me pictures all the time. I'm jealous like every time. It's oh, ridiculous. Yeah, he's in Auckland, which doesn't. We fly up and around the mountains. We've got mountains surrounding all, all of us, all around us, and lakes. Uh, we go up into the area regularly where they film part of Lord of the Rings and all that sort of. Oh, character. that is incredible! I'm coming down to hang out with you guys. That's just no doubt. I might spend a month down there. Get yeah. ready, New Zealand! Here I come. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, all right, so now you've done all your training. You've got through everything. What? is your, if you remember it, your very first SAR case, your, your first rescue. Yeah, um, well, luckily I've, I've, I've actually got a reasonably good memory, um, which uh, sometimes fails me, but usually it's okay. Um, but a lot of the military stuff was training, you know, just going out and doing training and, and whatever, and you're doing hoists and confined areas and all that sort of stuff. Um, but my first actual patient person that I did or SAR that I did was was in the Iroquois. I did two, two that I, I clearly remember. Uh, the very first one was an overdue tramper uh, up on the hills. And define, real quick, define tramper for me. Oh, tra uh, hiker. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's sorry. all good. Hey, listen, I know you New Zealand guys, you got all different terms like uh, Chris throws all these terms out at me. I got to ask, what the heck does that mean? So anyway, yeah. all right, tramper, so, hiker, yeah. got so, it. So tramper, hiker, uh, yeah. hunter. Those sort of people. Perfect. And, and um, we went to go and find them, and we were, went down into uh, south of um, Auckland, down into these hills, and uh, fairly, fairly new into that sort of thing. And it was a, a proper search, and, you know, and, and when it's for real, it's always different than training. And you're reasonably, um, I wouldn't say, I try not to use the words excited, but probably the adrenaline's going a little bit more because it's yeah. real. And uh, anyway, on the way down, I psyched myself that we were going for a body, that this guy was going to be dead, you know, and we were going to get there and that would be the worst case uh, scenario. And uh, we got down to the area where we, the hut was that we knew he'd been and the pilots goes, oh, he said, we, we might land first and sort of sort ourselves out and then we'll go and do our search and everyone happy with that. And we're like, oh yeah, yeah. And we're coming down this river and he goes, oh, looks like there's a bit of smoke. I wonder what that's from so we went down there and here's a guy sitting with his campfire as happy as you and i are other than he's wet and cold <laughs> and that was it and it's like well <laughs> you know that was a bit of a fizzer oh and, that's great though yeah and um <laughs> and the, the first winch that i did um on a sar was out at great barrier island it's an island about uh half an hour uh east of auckland okay. and uh very isolated whatever and the, this kid had gone missing and they sent us in to try and find him, which we did, and um, and hoisted him out of the out of the bush and flew him into Auckland Hospital. So that was my first real SAR as such. He wasn't well, injured. He was just we just missing kid. Yeah, just a missing kid. Yeah, just got separated from the group a little bit. And um, it, it, you know, New Zealand's full of bush and hills, and that that's not an un uncommon thing for people to get separated from each other. So no major injuries to him or anything. Just no, no, oh, nice. No. No. Um, were you the hoist operator or were you yeah, the... Was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's a crewman winch operator or hoist operator. It's a dual, yeah. dual role that we had. So there was, there was three of us on board and went out and... and oh, sorry, there would have been four. We would have taken a medic with us as well. So remind me, and this is for everybody else out there too. So you guys fly with two pilots up front and then one crew member or the two crew members in the back? 
uh, in the Air Force, it was one. So it was two pilots and, and the helicopter crewman. Okay. And the BKs in, in New Zealand, um, the most standard configuration is single pilot, uh, intensive care paramedic, um, which is the higher level of what they can do. And then either a second medic slash horse operator or someone like myself, they're becoming dinosaurs, which are the crewman <laughs> uh, EMT type kind of guys here. Gotcha. Nice, nice. And then that way you can go on the on the hoist hook and get hoisted in or hoist as well. Uh, no, so so we don't. We we are specifically uh, role specific. So so I uh -huh. only operate the winch. I could go up and down it, but I've seen how that works. And then nah, I'll stay up the top. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, um, man, I can't get on the hook enough. And of course, I can't hoist enough too. So I, I love it all. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, there's there's a couple of there's a couple of guys um, that I've had over the years who are who are being dual role. And we quite often go, oh, if we get, get a job up to a hut that looks fairly easy, then we'll swap over and I'll go down the wire and go grab them and do the do that end of it and just for something different. But yeah. Did you ever get to do it? Did you ever get to do that? Oh, now, now and again I do, yeah. 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 yeah not, Any, anything good? Uh, not, not the jobs I haven't. I've only done maybe one with those, but they're usually ones that we know somebody's at a hut and they're, they're not life-threatening or they're standing out of the way and doors or whatever. Because if we get in there and... Uh, it is something that's fairly life-threatening. I can't do too much about it. And you're like, all right, hey, take me back up. I need to switch with you. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Nice. Yeah. Man, that, that's great. So uh, first one was a landing, getting a guy out of just off a river who's fat, dumb, and happy instead of a campfire. And, and the other one was finding the kid. And you, yeah. you winched that guy out. Now, did you send down a medic to go get him? And then, oh, nice. Yeah. Man, I'm not. Man. I'm not. I'm not sure whether to. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about the third one. Oh, um, heavy! Come on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I try not to to talk about it too much because some people don't deal with it very well, and and others do. Um, so we had a um, a job came in uh, when I was in the in the air force, and uh, the police up in the Waitakere Ranges, which is west of Auckland, it's just a, a low not a mountain range, but a hill range covered in, in bush, uh, had found a body and they wanted the body recovered. And they came into us and said, oh, look, police are up there. Um, he's all done. He's in a body bag. Basically, we just need someone to be winched in, or hoisted in, put him in, in the Stokes basket. Out you go, down to the funeral director or the coroner or whatever, and that's it. So I went, oh, okay. And I thought, oh, well, I said, oh, I'll um, ride the wire then. And, um, and I'll go in and get him. And, uh, and it sort of dawned on me that I'd never actually seen a dead body, a deceased person. I've never actually seen one for real. So I rang my wife and said, oh, look, I'm going up into the hills to go and get this body. And I said, I don't, I don't really know what to expect. You know, and I'm still young. I'm, I'm yeah. um, you know, late 20s sort of thing. And uh, she said, well, when I went to Marty's funeral, I just thought of her as being asleep. So if you think of them as being asleep and they're not going to hurt you, they're just lying there, you'll be good. So I'm like, oh, sweet. So, so after we thump in the lyric when we get out there, and I, put my <laughs> and I got all my helmet and all the bullshit on, and I get winched in. And as I'm, all, as I'm getting winched in, I can see all these police and everywhere around the thing. And I'm thinking, oh, I thought they, thought they said the body was here. Oh, anyway. So I land. As I land and come off the hot, I turn around. And then I realise... He's not in the body bag. He's not prepared. 
as a gang assassination. He's tied to a tree with most of his clothes removed and had been shot at point blank range through the back of his head with a shotgun. Oh that my was not God. What I was promised. <laughs> he was not asleep. And they turn around to me and they go, Oh, great, you're here. And I'm like, yeah, I'm here, but I'm about to lose my shit big time and throw up. What? <laughs> yeah. So um, so they basically looked to me for support. And I remember I never took my helmet off. I left my dark visor down because I didn't want them to see the fear in my face <laughs> as I got this guy and popped him in the body bag and, and tried not to gag. And I'm just like, this. I'm not going to describe it. You can imagine this, what the scene looked like because it was a gang, you know, drug assassination type thing. <clears throat> so anyway, we get him in and the helicopter comes back to, to lift me and we're going up and, and it's reasonably high voice. Yep. And as I'm going up, I'm just like, oh, no, 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 way, no way. Anyway, what happened was the zip hadn't been done up quite fully and it came undone and his foot popped out. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, he's still alive. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. That's terrible. That is really uh, terrible. uh, So what was what was sort of for me uh, quite a horrific thing to be to be put into, you know, cold, cold turkey. Um, You know, at the time it it wasn't particularly funny, but uh, later on it sort of became a little bit easier to deal with. But yeah, um, that's something that you know in the MSR thing in New Zealand, uh, we. We don't do them every shift, and we, but we we come across a lot of um, death and injury by that, and body yeah. recoveries and, and things. And they they never they're never easy, and they they take a toll on you uh, to some degree as well. Um, but they're easier to deal with as your longevity in this business stays. You know, right. so if someone's brand new going and possibly won't deal with that like I did the same as I, I would now. If I went into that guy now, I would deal with that completely differently. Probably, probably. (laughs) 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 That's why we do an audio, not a video. Selfie, what? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Terrible, terrible. Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. So so that was sort of... uh, that was sort of the, the, the Air Force career with it, which got me into that. Uh, and uh, particularly understanding what the SAR environment's about and to a degree, the reality of it. And yeah. also the helicopters are not your friend. That When things go wrong, they, they go wrong horribly. Right. Um, so, yeah, so it's a fairly steep learning curve for, for people. And, um, yeah. So well, you're talking like training or missions that go wrong? Oh, everything. Um, everything goes, everything. Goes. I mean, it, you're, you're very accurate with that. It just like, I've been on training flights where you're like, whoa, whoa, let's, we're going, we're going back right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, yeah. you know, or land immediately, you know, like it's happened. Um, missions, same thing. Like you're on it. You're like, Hey, uh, uh, we get, we got, we got this, we got to go or we're out. You know, yeah. So, and, and it's very easy. Um, it's very, very easy. I think to become complacent once you've done, you know, oh. got the sort of adrenaline out. And we're just we're just the guys in the helicopter. It doesn't matter whether you're a military or in a BK117. You're just the guys going off to a job. I've done, I've done this a thousand times before. Yeah, and every thousand and tooth time, you're going to get tripped up by somebody. So yep. just be ready. Yeah. Yep. 
That's uh, actually, uh, man, I, I teach that all the time to everybody. It falls under actually uh, the DuPont's Dirty Dozen uh, from the, uh, I can't forget his first name, but anyway, the DuPont out of Canada. And he made the 12, 12 things that go wrong in helicopter accidents and most oh, of them are human related. Yeah. And, and complacency is one of them. And, you know, like that one and the norms drive me mental there. You know, you get complacent because you, you do it so many times. It's like, oh, we're just, I'm going through the motions. No, don't just go through the motions. Make it real every time. Because going through the motions is how people get hurt. You know, it's that one paying attention. And then the norms for me, sorry, the norms for me is like, oh, this is the way we've always done it. No, that is, that is, no, it's not. We, we are not doing it the same way we did it in 1940. Stop saying that. Things progress, things get better, things change. You need to change. Anyway, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. That's right. No, no. Everyone's got them. Right? <laughs> uh, I love it. Anyway. Yeah. So, all right. So now you, in our conversation offline, you and I had talked and, and you had mentioned you're, you're like only one of a few guys in New Zealand, all of New Zealand that has like over 4,000 EMS cases or jobs. Yeah, there's not many of us. Yeah. So I, D, how, Chris has like 5,000. Like he had, he got an award for like 5,000 or something like that. He, 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 made, he, he writes a few down that he probably wasn't all. Ah, come on, Deeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling him out now. <laughs> That may be, it might be 5,000 that he heard about. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I don't know what his actual number is. I, I do remember him getting an award and I remember talking about it with him. Yeah, he, um, yeah, he, he, he wouldn't be too different than me. Um, so the Auckland Trust used to give you a, a, a like a plaque or a, a thing for, for 2,000 missions. Oh, maybe uh, that's what it was, 2,000. Yeah, okay. Which is what he, yeah, he did around the similar time as me. The, the crew guys tend sometimes to be a little bit higher um, because we used to go on hospital transfers that the medics didn't go on. We'd take a flight team. But okay. he, would, he wouldn't be too far um, in this day and age behind me. He would, he would be up around that sort of high threes to, to early fours as well. Okay, yeah. so let's say he got an amazing 2,000, not 5,000. So my bad. Sorry, Deeks. So, so you got a 2,000 around. You guys, 4,000 cases. That's, that's unheard of for a lot of places. Like, you and that doesn't i don't include um the training that i do the only right. training flights that i include in that are for myself uh, for night vision uh, where yeah. i need currencies and things um, i've never kept a, a tab on how many hoists i've done but it would be in the thousands so, um yeah. and yeah so so you know actual missions um I, I never really sort of counted them it was just the fact that auckland uh, when i worked there had a um, database that managed to spit it out and, uh, and I've just sort of kept an Excel. I used to keep a logbook, obviously, but um, I've also kept an Excel spreadsheet. So that just does it all. I got a I got a millennial to set it up for. Child, <laughs> 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 come here, set this Excel up for me. Um, and he's, he obviously thinks I'm going to be around because he's programmed it out to about 2040 or something. But uh, oh, that's hilarious. But it, it does it all automatically. So I know how many MVG hours, how many winches um, I've done and, uh, within reason and uh, flights and flight hours. So, yeah, that's otherwise, great. Yeah, but there's so, not a lot of us in New Zealand with that sort of numbers. 
That so I mean I know there are some memorable cases that you had in there, and I don't have anything in front of me to read, uh, but I'll take whatever any story that you can think of right off the top of your head, and then I'll start asking you questions. Oh God, where do you even start? <laughs> All right, let's start with water. Uh, anything out of the ocean, because I know you guys. Well, this is something I'll say that not many people talk about with New Zealand, because you guys, you guys support inland and mountain yep. rescue. You do river rescue. You do uh, the ocean, like shoreline rescue. Out, you go offshore. You do it all. It's, yep. uh, and I, I know, like, all right. So New Zealand is not, you know, it's not the same size as the U.S. or other, you know, other areas that you're going to. You guys are relatively small, but ideally, you're you're going all over the island, and that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're very um, multi-rolled in what we do. There's there's no there's there's a few helicopters in the country that predominantly do inter-hospital work. Yeah. Um, but all of us at some point will do EMS, uh, and some of us that's that's all we do. Uh, and for us here in Nelson, uh, because we're quite isolated, we've got all the, um, the Marlborough Sounds, which is, is little islands and uh, sounds as such. Um, you know, people get very isolated, so we're out there, um, boats, um, water. We don't do a, a lot of that here. They do that more in Auckland. Um, yeah. Because Auckland's got coasts on either side of it. Okay. Um, we did a lot of water rescue stuff in Auckland and boat uh, winching and hoisting as well. So you're yeah. winching right off the boats. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I could start with that. Yeah. So if anybody's never done it, it's pretty much uh, like roller skating on ice with a blindfold on because <laughs> everything's moving. The ocean's moving, the vessel's yeah. moving, we're moving, the, the guy on the end of the wire's moving. And I've sort of over the years found that there's, there's a number of different things that once you've mastered those, the rest of them become um, I don't want to use the word easy, but easier. Right. So when you first start doing a day a day hoist out in the paddock can be quite difficult. Right. Later on, you're doing a confined area with trees around. Then you go off and do this and this and this. Once you've got into the water and boat rescue, doing land rescue is not difficult at all because you've got so much reference. Um, so if you can pull off a good a good boat winch or um, water rescue, um, you know that that makes the rest of the life easier. Going on from that, once you get into the NVG with the night work, that becomes a, a different scenario altogether. So, um, but yeah, certainly um, boat winching. There's there's a well, number of number it, of memories. maybe actually hold on. Maybe we should go backwards and we should start with mountain, the wide open area hoisting to make it easy, yeah. easy your words, and then we'll get to the boats, the more difficult. <laughs> well, well, you know we can we can make this as hard as we want, uh, Aaron. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I just sort of found that, you know, once, when, particularly when I did my initial training was it because everything was a, was like a, like a stepping block. So you right. learned how to, how to talk the aircraft, then you learned how to talk the aircraft on the slope, and then you did this and this and this. And by the time you'd finished your crewman course and then your winch operator course, you were doing stuff right from the beginning, but you were doing it like that, second nature. Yeah. So, um, so for, for hoisting and winching type scenario on land, when you're initially doing it, you know, positioning how to how to position an aircraft, and particularly something like a UH-1, which is a big machine, yeah, um, over the top of one spot that you have to get that hook into their hand. So we, I, I'm not sure um, what your training is like, but for us in New Zealand, um, particularly on the land winching, the person on the ground doesn't move. They're not yeah. Left to move. 
Oh, that's us too. With the hand, yeah, I'm sure you yeah. do. Yeah, and that that can be, you know, when you're learning, you you dance all around. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> control I, I like, that cable, make that just, own that cable. Yeah, I just had an expression I managed to suck it off back in. But anyway, that can be quite difficult. Wait, <laughs> was it a New New Zealand expression? Because I love them. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But, <laughs> No, I won't. We'll keep just in case his children listen to this one day. But anyway, it can be quite difficult. Once you've got that that nailed, then trying to do that in a um, in a treed area um, can be difficult. Then trying to do that at height. Uh, so we did we did one recently in Nelson that was uh, filmed for a program, and of course they're all over it. And it was 120 feet, um, in amongst pine trees. We could hardly see the, the guys, and the footage on there, the hook drops, bang, straight into his hand. Oh, now, that, that didn't happen for me straight away. That's taken a long time to be able to get to that <laughs> sort of area. So, so as, as you develop through those sort of things and then go into your, your night hoisting, that's a different scenario altogether. Then start strapping on MVG. I don't know if you guys wear them. We do, yeah. We use them regularly. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to MVG and stuff later on. Uh, sure. With that. But, uh, you know, doing that and then having your no peripheral and having to move your head, um, as opposed to your eyes to be able to, to do that sort of stuff. Um, now, anybody that I've trained as a winch operator will all tell you the same thing. All of them, bar none of them, have had their neck wrenched during training because I start them at the beginning during daytime and I grab the helmet and I physically move their head. <laughs> just not, uh, as brutal as that sounds, um, what, it does, what it does, Jace, is that when they start, they tend to just use their eyes to look around. So if you can get them moving their head from day one, when it comes time to them to put the, the night vision gear on, it's almost sort of second nature and it's not such a new thing for them to actually have to go, wow, if I want to look at my tail, I actually have to go like this. Or I have to go like that. Or, wow, I like that. So, yeah. I might um, steal uh, that from my own training. Yeah, I've got a few. I've got a few that are sort of a bit still sort of 80s and not quite as PC as uh, the world would have. The world would have That's all right. Hey, hey, if it works, I, use it. Well, well, I do. And it's, it's, it's not so that I can, um, you know, beat these people to get away with it. It's about getting really good. Um, <laughs> it kind of is. Uh, There's the truth. The truth just came out. Come on, baby. <laughs> it's, about, it's about getting um, really good disciplines and really good standards into these people straight away. Yeah, as opposed to just the father and son, this is how I used to do it. And oh, you'll be right, and you know, move your head now and again. And of course, I had that that whole military training as well, where you didn't what what you were taught is what you did. You didn't vary from that at all. Right. You you stuck to it. So, um, yeah. So once you get onto that, and then into the, the boat of water winching again, then that's a, a different ballpark altogether. And plucking people out of the water, I've sort of found can in some ways be a little bit easier because you've got a little bit more fat in the system yes you know you can you can either drop your your guy into the water if you've got a swimmer uh, or you can put somebody into the water if, it, if you don't get to them you can pull them back out fly along drop them back in yeah. um, as many times as you need to and you've got a couple of hundred feet of cable to play with as well so you can always go back and keep a reference with these people if, if possible so that in some ways it's a little bit easier when you get with a boat you're stuck you're stuck yeah. there and the smaller that vessel is, the harder it is. Uh-huh. Uh, I think one of the one of the hardest um, ones I've ever done was was uh, coincidentally with Deeks. It was off a fifteen foot 
runabout way out in the middle of the Hauraki Gulf where there was no reference, no nothing. And trying to get this guy off in a stretcher, it had a cardiac arrest. Um, and it felt like it took a week. But in actual fact, on the um, video that we had the, the, down the wire camera, it was about 35 minutes to get him to get him off. Wow. We tried everything, coming in high, coming in low, we spun him around. We did everything to, to because it was so small, we just had the pilot just had no reference. Pilot's on the right in the BK. We're in a left-hand winch. Um, you don't get much harder than that. And uh, so well, what we ended up doing was that by default, because Kiwis are so, such nosy buggers, um, everybody <laughs> when they see a helicopter wants to come over and have a look and see what's going on because you might be a photo opportunity, you know. And so this guy turned up. And what we did is we got him about sort of uh, 50 metres yards in front of the other one. Yep. We got the two of them going along at the same speed. And the pilot used that as a reference while I picked them off the back of this oh, tiny cabin. So. That's super smart. <clears throat> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so boat winching in Auckland wasn't, um, wasn't unusual. Uh, one of the, the ones that I always uh, have a giggle at was um, a launch, you know, 40, 50 foot launch. And um, it was sinking and we went out and we'd uh, got a couple of guys who were already in the water. So we grabbed them. And there was one guy and they said, hi, oh, he, he, he doesn't want to let go of the boat. And basically what he did, if you can imagine, is he climbed up onto the flybridge as it's sinking yeah. slowly. And then that went under. So then he went up a bit further and he ended up right up on the top of the mast, hanging onto the whoop aerial. <laughs> and we're just sitting there laughing, going, mate, in another couple of minutes, you're going to be in the water whether you want to be or not. And he was never going to let go of that boat. He was just never letting go of it. And in the end, obviously, he didn't. We fished him out. So. Now, how, how are you getting the guys out? Are you guys using a rescue basket or? A strop, yeah, a cinch collar. Oh, uh, so thing. is that a swimmer going down with the strop, putting it on? I know uh, Deeks has done a little bit of both, but kind of curious yeah. as to what you're doing. Uh, so in, in Auckland, most of the guys, oh, sorry, all, all of the guys pretty much were trained uh, to swim competently. You've got someone like Deeks who's a um, surf lifesaver, so he's at the other end of the spectrum. But all of them were confident to go into the water. Uh, some would come off the hook and stay on a safety rope if they were really confident. So someone like Deeks would do that, whereas the others would stay on the hook and we'd just have the, um, we had a, a neoprene floating style strop so it could yep. float in the water while you put it on and yep. get it off and up the guy. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So the guy that's hanging on to this whip antenna going yeah. under, I'm going yeah. down with the boat. Yeah. So you just, as soon as he gets to the water, swimmer goes over yeah, and says, all right, hold on to this, dude. What's wrong? Let yeah, it go. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta let it go, sir. Yeah, you see, you know, you see some some funny things in this industry sometimes that just it's like really, you know, it's gonna happen no matter what. So, and then, uh, you know, as I said, then you move into NVG doing night the night um, the night hoisting as well through those, and, um, and that's another different scenario altogether. You know, where you're yeah. looking down essentially to we we refer to them as the you know, the cardboard bits and the toilet rolls. Yep. Looking down the, the toilet tubes. and um, That's exactly that's, it. That's a great analogy. If you put like a, a little green lens on there, uh, just, <laughs> just like, just look through that and then all yeah. day and be like, oh, this is what MVGs look like. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so in keeping with that, I, I just put a, I, I, I know when I emailed you, I said about some of the things um, that I'd seen and I'm going to go into MVG. 
over the years, there's there's been a lot of changes, right, from when I first started in the military, even more so to, to now, but even within the EMS sector in New Zealand, the procedures that have been bought and uh, some of the boundaries we now have, some of the equipment that we, we now use that we never used before. And like you say, you know, just because we did it 40 years ago doesn't mean we need to be doing it now. Right. We do need to be careful that we don't introduce new ideas because somebody thinks it's a great idea that 10 years ago we went, no, well, let's not do that. Yeah. Or um, 10 years ago it failed and now you're trying to repeat something that failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so, and I've seen that happen as well. Yeah. Uh, the level of training that we do now and um, there's enough guys in the system, you know, around sort of my era or behind me that you actually, I wouldn't say you're getting better training, but you, you in the early days, it was a little bit hit and miss. They're all volunteers. Um, and I learned from somebody else sort of half pie and, and just, they made it work in those, you know, in the eighties sort of thing. Whereas now it's a very structured training system and we have um, much higher standards that we expect of people. And, and of course that has a um, ongoing thing. We have all the aircraft have tracking systems in them now, either yeah. spiders or track plus or whatever. So, you know, you can see where, where everybody is and what they're doing. And um, if somebody comes to grief, you know, you, you've got to, um, you know, you say you've got a point to start, but that doesn't always work either. Cause I, I went to a, uh, a crash that um, had happened within, within an hour. So it what was kind a, of crash? A helicopter crash, sorry. That was a okay. Robinson R44 um, and they, the, the first one landed and they said he left before us and he isn't here. So we jumped in straight away. So it was less than, less than an hour I'd been missing. Uh, went to his last known point. And uh, of course, obviously they're, they're every three minutes or whatever at 90 knots. So you've got a reasonable target to start with. Yep. The New Zealand bush being like it is and being so dense, it took a week before we found them. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so we went up for most of that day, I think, I can't remember how many hours we flew, we did a lot and we were, we kept finding things that we thought was a crash site and it wasn't. And, you know, and we just went round and round the area. Um, and as much as people would say, oh, well, you know, surely a crash helicopter, you'd find it straight away if you know where it is. This thing, I've got photos that I use for training um, and you can't see it. You can, even when we found it, you've got to move on different angles to see the, the tail boom and stuff. So anyway, um, so, so deep, deep in the, in the, just the trees yeah, and the swallows, yeah. Are, yeah, yeah. The swallows are, yeah. So, um, we, we searched during the day, then we had a break and then we went back up at night with the MVD to see mm -hmm. if we could see any light or anything and nothing. And then they started sending Landsar and, uh, the, the ground guys in and a few other helicopters. And then, um, towards the end of that week, so it was on the Monday, about the Thursday or something, they started finding a couple of little bits out of it. And uh, we went back up and um, and located it and went and sorted it. So I, I, <coughs> and I can probably assume that the pilot perished on impact and yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Just uh, one of those scenes that you would you would uh, yeah. be in with with a, with a helicopter crash. Yeah, not which, good. You know, which having been to um, a few of them over the years, that that quietens you down just for a little while. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, puts a little reality like, into it for all of us that fly too you're like Ooh, yeah yeah you know. absolutely and he didn't he didn't really do anything wrong with stupid it was just an accident and that happens yeah. but you got the training things and then then of course we've got the mvg now that the mvg has been brought in to give us a safer uh, night flying capability love it and, 
Love it. Highly recommended to anybody that's flying at night. Get goggles. Just get them. Absolutely. The, the, the problem I have with goggles, um, and anyone who's, who's worn them for a significant time would probably, hopefully, hopefully agree with me, is that as much as they're good, they will drag you into places that you should not be in because you can see. Very you true. In our, in our situation, um, the, the, two, the two episodes I've had where uh, one wasn't quite as critical as the other, but the other, um, I believe that was the end of my life, was on wearing, wearing MVG. And I've, I've had another person that I've taught um, who recently had a, a similar sort of experience wearing MVG. So, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we got a story here, my friend. Come back. Um, oh, <laughs> you're going to leave me hanging. I love it. <laughs> the point is that a lot of people will, will put it, they'll do the, the Envis course or whatever, and they strap their things on. They go out, it's a full moon, there's a billion and one stars. It's beautiful. And go, oh, it's in this lovely, in the shadow off the trees, and I can see this and I can see that. And they do that half a dozen times and they go, we're good to go. And then they go out on a night that's not so good. And they go, oh, it's not so, so good. Like zero moon. So you're talking, uh, be fully clear on this. So yeah. night vision goggles work better with light, as crazy as it yeah. sounds. Yeah. But you can't use them during the day because it whites them out. But at night, if you have like a, a full moon or a half moon, it's perfect because everything is illuminated just right. But then if you get no moon, it's dark, maybe a cloud cover. So yep. you don't have much background illumination. It, no. You lose definition yeah. on, on the terrain and you can't see things. Um, one of the classics that I think that, that a lot of people miss is you're flying along and then um, you don't actually realize, but you're going through rain because you yeah. can't see through the MVG. Totally. So we, we, we have procedures uh, here where the pilots uh, regularly as we fly along will turn the landing lights on and off. So okay. you can see if you're in rain or if you're in, uh, I don't, have you ever been in snow? Oh yes, yeah. Crazy. Kodiak, Alaska, my friend. <laughs> it's interesting, Crazy. it's interesting. So, so yeah, NVG is, um, yes, while it does keep you safe and it's certainly, you know, I've, I've lived through the days of thundering out with nothing to thundering yep. out with, with wearing um, NVG. I would still take NVG uh, hands down, absolutely. I would. Yeah. But I, I think that the big the big take home I'm trying to push there, Jason, is that they, they drag you into places that you shouldn't necessarily be in or weather that you shouldn't necessarily be in. I totally agree. And, and you know what? That's going to come back to the full crew, uh, crew camaraderie inside the aircraft. Everybody has to have a voice. Everybody needs to talk about things. Like if somebody's uncomfortable and, and you know, you got just perspective. You got everybody has to have their their piece of the pie in there and talk about it. So, so we get taught that. I'm sure it's worldwide. We get taught about this in this crew resource management. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really care what you perform in that helicopter. The second you go in, you are an integral part of the crew. Absolutely. Right. 100%. And if you're not, and if you don't take that mindset, then you might as well just go to SeaWorld and jump in a Robinson once again, go for a go for a fly and eat your popcorn and lick your ice cream and go, yeah, now I've got tons of helicopters. Oh, because that was great. That's what you're doing. You know, if you if you're not going to have a voice and you're not going to speak up and you're not going to question things, um, then you know, and, and I find that with with new medics or crew, 
um, you know, trying to teach them crew resource management and how that actually works. And they, what a lot of them don't understand is that they should be the person asking well before us. So if you're in a um, situation where the weather's deteriorated, that voice should be them going, is this normal? Or do you, is this like, are we okay? And then getting a, a, a responsible answer back from the rest of the crew as in, yeah, we're fine. We're still doing 90 knots. We've still got 500 feet underneath us. We're just going to slow down because <coughs> um, it's, that's getting a bit crappy or what have you. Right. But if you just get, you know, oh, what do you know? Shut up, you know, we're busy. You're going to end up in a pile of poop. There's, there's no two ways about it. Yeah. And I've always thought that if, if you can, if you can justify to other people with not, I don't necessarily mean the word justify, but uh, give a rational explanation. Say, yeah, this is quite normal. Um, remember, a helicopter can pull into a hover. So what we're going to do is we're going to come up to this ridge line. The pilot's going to have a look over the thing and go, nah, that's no good, and we're going to turn back because we're in this valley system. And if you can reassure them, uh, is probably the word I'm looking for, they'll grow on that and they'll understand what they what they can or can't do and where all that fits in. But uh, CRMs, that's huge to me. It's just just absolutely. I, I, think, I think a lot of the time it gets underplayed and there's a lot of time that we use it that we don't even realize we're using it yeah. um, to, to keep ourselves safe. One of the ones that I, I use regularly um, is if, if you're flying and you can open the doors, so most helicopters have a, a, restriction, a restriction speed on the door, yep. be it 50 or 60 knots or whatever. If you're flying and you can open the doors because you're at that speed, you need to ask yourself, why? Is it because we're about to go into a search area and I need the door open to have a look? Fine. Is it because we're about to hoist and I need to open the door because I can't do it from inside? Um, fine. Is it because uh, we're approaching into a confined landing area and I want to keep the rotor clearances? Fine. Is it because the weather's shitty and we're now down so low and so slow that we're actually getting ourselves into a dangerous spot? And once you can start quantifying that, that's the one I use and particularly at night as well, is looking for decreasing airspeeds and altitude and then going, why are we doing this? Why are we not at 1,500 feet doing 120 knots? Why are we at 500 feet doing 40 knots? Right. And then throwing those questions. And it may be that you need to do that for half a mile just to get around the coast and then you're clear. You can justify yeah. that. But if you can't, that's the first flag for me is, is the door speed. You know what? I'll tell you the story that I had myself. And uh, I, again, I like to throw myself under the bus uh, from time to time because it, it helps others and I have no shame. So I, you know, like I make mistakes. It happens. If you ask my wife, it happens regularly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I, I'm flying back um, in, in the, in the cabin and I hear up, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to shoot the approach, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, cool, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting in the back and we, all of a sudden we fly over the airport and we're, we're still going. And I come on ICS, I'm like, what are we doing? And and at that moment, the, the whole crew kind of was like, oh, wait a minute, did he not understand? Or, and so they explained, oh, we're going to shoot the approach. I'm like, okay, I understand that. We just flew over the airport. And they're like, no, 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 the approach starts down south and yeah. we're going to get into the approach path and come north. And all of a sudden, then it clicked to me, and I'm like, oh, okay, my bad. So 
it wasn't that I wasn't paying attention. It was that I did not understand that there was not an approach path from the north and an approach path from the south or just the approach paths coming from the south. So learn something that day. And again, it got brought up in a safety meeting, but again, like throw myself under, they'd be like, I didn't know what the heck they were doing. I was still a young crew member. And yeah, that, it doesn't matter. That's the whole point is that, that you, you recognize that and then you know how to, how to approach that or teach somebody else and say, yeah, you know, this yeah. happened to me. Yeah whatever but if you just sit there fat dumb and happy um like our friend deeks does uh, <laughs> come on deek <laughs> i know he's gonna listen to this. oh me too this is gonna be great we can pick on um, him. there's nothing he can do about it right now too <laughs> yeah but, but if you're just sitting there looking out the window that you're ineffective you're just you're just a passenger you know right agreed so so I, I still, I got to back up to this story of, uh, come on, I have not forgot. And I know everybody out here that's listening is like, oh, so what's the story? Well, well, it, it, it is. Um, and I think really more than the story as, as to what, what got learned out, uh, what got taught and, and what's been learned out of it. And this has helped save another crew um, a few years later. So we, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we're actually in an AS350 Squirrel. We're using it as a backup machine. Uh, went to go and get this guy out of the hills. It's half past 11 at night, MVG. Weather's okay, uh, but a cloud on the top of the hills or whatever. And when you do CRM training, they talk about the Swiss cheese and all the holes lining up. So the problem is having experienced this, when you realize that you've gone through some of these holes, you're already through the next two. They've already happened. So unless you keep on top of your game, it's going to go pear-shaped very, very quickly. And that was sort of what happened to us. Unbe un not unaware, but we allowed ourselves um, to get into a situation that either the pilot or certainly myself, from my experience, they should have picked up well earlier, but we didn't. And we went to go into to winch this, to, to, I was going to winch the medic in, and I'm standing on the on the skirt of the squirrel and I flick my head around and I went, let's get the out of here. You can put whatever <laughs> word you want. Because the blank. <laughs> yeah, as I looked down the tail boom at the lights, I could see swirling fog around the around the tail boom. Okay. And then I flicked my head forward and we were completely in white. And we'd gone inadvertent IMC in the hover with me out on the skid wearing MVGs, this cloud rolling over the top of us. So Holy all, of, all of that. So anybody that's listening in particular helicopter pilot knows what's going to happen in the next 20 seconds. And they know that I probably shouldn't be here talking to you. So I got myself in somehow, um, slammed the door shut and we went to turn to get out of it, believing that we were heading back out the valley we'd come in. But unbeknown to us, we'd actually made two pedal turns to the right, and we were now facing somewhere around the vicinity of a 2,000-foot climb to get over the top of the mountain that we were going to winch on. <clears throat> so we never came out of the, the cloud because we were possibly generating our own. We're looking through MVGs. Um, all the position lights and anti-strobes are flashing, so it's like out of a sci-fi sort of movie. The pilot um, is concentrating on keeping that aircraft flying and I pulled all the CRM I could out of my um, bum to, to give him a hand to keep him as controlled as I could and back him up 
and uh, the medic did the same. He had already adopted the brace position because he wasn't on comms. He was getting ready to be winched. And um, after about a good minute or more uh, in this waiting, knowing that the next thing that's going to happen is either the ground or trees are going to come through the front and that's going to be the end of our, our lives. Um, the radar altimeter started screaming. And we believed that we were climbing out of a valley and it was bugged at 200 feet. So we had less than 200 feet below us to terrain. Wow. Still in cloud, still in, in about an IMC. And then about 10 seconds later, we popped out of it into, into the stars. When we went on the tracker and had a look, if we'd been 50 meters to the right, we'd have impacted. Um, oh my God. So, so that's pretty um, sobering sort of stuff. And um, we, we flew about another half hour. Um, I'd actually told the guys that we need to land and we went to, and, and there was another sort of little issue and we went, no, stuff this, let's go to a, an airfield. So we did. And we landed there about, I don't know, I can't remember, quarter past 12 or something at night, and sat, sat on the ground uh, for close to two hours, just trying to deal with what we'd, we'd just done. So as scary as that is, and as much as I hate sort of reliving it, the, the things to take out of it is that we had a really reasonably experienced, or a very experienced pilot, not so much on MVG, but a very experienced pilot. We've got a very, very experienced crewman winch operator in the back and a, and a medic and we got ourselves into that situation and when you look at it we had task fixation on the way in um, there was a couple of other things that we did um, I can't sort of think off the top of my head but the flags were there they yeah. were there a bit of fatigue because it was late at night there's task fixation the you know let's go and it's a it's I wouldn't say it was complacency but it's just another winch at night yeah you know, yeah like, should be relatively easy. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. It should be a walk in the park for us. Yeah. And um, and then some some other other sort of bits and pieces. But this one I say, by the time you actually realise you are in those holes, you're already through them. You're already on your way yeah. to the next one before you you realise that sort of thing. Uh, we believed that we were flying out the valley. We didn't. We did two pedal turns without realising and went towards there. Uh, I sat on the. Um, on the gauges for the pilot and um, told him, just read out his airspeed, told him his wings were level, kept him calm. He was very proficient in instrument flying. He didn't have an IFR rating, but he was very proficient in instrument flying. And the combination of that and the medic shutting up until such time as it was, and I mean that in all in seriousness. Yeah, no, no. Basically, it's, I'm losing my train of thought right now, but it's basically, pertinent information only like yeah, you see something call it out if you don't there's no reason to talk he was very very quiet because he didn't know what had happened and he wasn't wearing mvg he just knew that it all turned to shit very quickly for us yeah so by the time he got on comms and listened he realized that we were in serious serious trouble and then towards the later part he started coming in as well backing up what i was doing with that pilot and going you've got this you are under control we're still climbing we're doing whatever speed we were doing blah 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 so you know, the, 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 the learnings from that are, are, are huge. And um, that's where I say, like, MVG, we wouldn't have gone in there if we didn't have MVG. We just wouldn't have been there. Yeah. But we did because we've got goggles and we can see. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of learning out of that, and particularly in, in crew resource management. And 
I go back to this, you know, fat, dumb, and happy. If all you're doing is being crewman in the back that operates the winch now and again, go and work in the supermarket because you're, you're an integral part. If you're a medic that all you're focused on is the patient, go and join them because you're part, the three of us, the three of us combined on that evening to get the three of us out of there. And, and, and I knew, having been to a number of helicopter crashes, I knew what was coming. I knew what was about to happen. Um, very, very real, very, very real. So uh, luckily, because we got out of that, I teach the new winch operator crewman part of what I did because yeah. I can only do so much. And that, um, that paid dividends not long ago with one of our crews where the pilot got spatially disorientated on MVG and the crewman went and just jumped in. You're doing this, you're doing that, bang, 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 and they got out of it, which could have could have potentially been another catastrophic event. So, um, you know, like I say before, CRM's massive to me. I watched it in the Air Force with senior crewmen um, when we were on MBG and ship weather. Um, you know, uh, one of the one of the Iroquois in 2010 crashed in similar conditions to us. They, they did a turn and went into the hill. <coughs> Excuse me. So they, these things are very, very real. And I, I learned from him about when to speak up and when it was appropriate. And I've yeah. used it over the years. And sometimes you, 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 you do it when it's inappropriate and you get a bit of a backlash. You got to take the, the wins with the losses. I, but absolutely. At least, but at least you're doing it. And in, in that situation where we were in inadvertent IMC, I don't know many people in the helicopter who've been inadvertent IMC in the hover with their crewmen standing out on the skid, flying for close to two minutes and live to tell the tale. So, you know, it, that's good training. It's good CRM. It's, it's keeping your head focused on the, the on the task and you know as i said to you earlier you can walk around with a t-shirt with all sorts of sponsorship and labor. it doesn't <laughs> now you got a job to do do your job <clears throat> absolutely yeah. quiet professionals yeah. thanks mike <laughs> my buddy mike odell on that one <laughs> we need quiet professionals yeah, yeah. wow so, yeah, so, you know, as much as I've had some really good laughs and, and bits and pieces, have been some very sobering times, and sometimes you look back and go, gee, you know, like you really you really cut the wire. People have said a lot to me over the years, you know, oh, it must be dangerous flying in helicopters. I must just say it was more dangerous driving on the Auckland motorway going home after. <laughs> 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 you get some clown overtakes you or cuts you off or whatever. It was more dangerous doing that sometimes than flying in the helicopters. And I think, you know, when you look at how many times you have that on the roads or other things versus what we go through and, and for the amount of, you know, for the volume that I've done, the number yeah. of those is, is only a very small percentage. But of course, that percentage is the high percentage of what we're doing, isn't it? It is, of course. Like, it's whatever. It's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh you know, like again, I mean, you're just kind of giving me little pieces of of everything you've done. I, I, I'm in. I'm, I'm in for the long haul tonight. I don't know about anybody else, but all right. So we we talked about a little bit of water and boat hoisting. That was that was in the mountains. Yeah. What else you got uh, in the mountains? Uh we got a lot in the mountains. Um, I'm just trying to think of think of something that's. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's all interesting to me. I love it all. So. Yeah, yeah. 
we, we do a lot. We do a lot in mountains. Um, I think if we, if we take that the next step and forget about the mountains, what we get in, in our region is a lot of locator beacons, personal locator beacons. Okay. Because there, there's three national parks here. Yeah. And there's a lot of people from, uh, not so much since COVID, but pre-COVID, there's a lot of foreigners um, that we accidentally allow into the country. <laughs> Just wait till you accidentally allow me in the country. Oh, game on. So they, they go, on, they, go, they go hiking in the hills and a lot of Kiwis do as well. So it's a very popular area to come to. So when, when you get a um, locator beacon job, more often than not, you don't actually know what you're going to. It, it, sometimes you'll get a little bit of detail, but usually nothing. And um, you'll, you'll go there and you, you sort of have a try and have a guess of what you're, you're going to, but it's not always the, the right scenario. And you could be, the exciting thing about those jobs, if, if I use the word exciting, if it's at lunchtime, I'd rather be having lunch, but uh, is that you don't know what you're going to. So if you get a, an EMS job, they go, okay, we've got a motor vehicle accident. We've got chest pain here. We've got yeah. whatever. You're on the way there, you go, okay, this is what we've gotten. And you're preparing for the patient. Like yeah, you, you know like, kind of what you're going to. Yeah. With a locator beacon, you don't know. So, you know, you, you, normally we chuck on a bit of extra fuel. Um, we'll put our harnesses on because it potentially could be a winch job. Um, there's all those sorts of dynamics that come in. Then when you get there, it might be just that you do a simple hover load off a rock to pick them up. Or it could be that um, they've fallen or they're wherever or they're on a track. Um, one that, that always sticks into mind was a, a guy who slipped um, and he tumbled close, close to two to 300 feet down the side of the mountain. Oh, yeah. Just and luckily they had a beacon with them and set it off. Um, and we got there and of course, there's these people and we drop the medic off on the ridge line to go and talk to them. They go, no, it's not us. He's down there. And uh, and then as you talk about so so this guy we were in the in the squirrel and that, and that one as well all, all the bad things seem to happen in squirrels what if we board them um, so we I sent the medic in to, to do that and in the squirrel you do a single person or a single stretcher winch because of the the weight limit it's only a three hundred pound winch on those yeah tiny super thin yeah. cable are yeah. you are you guys using a Goodrich or a Breeze Eastern. Uh, we use a Breeze Eastern 600 okay. pound on the case, but, uh, but we don't use squirrels anymore. This is going back a few years. Oh, so okay. because I hadn't done a lot of um, wind, uh, hoisting on the squirrel, you stand, the way you stand on the skid, you sort of got to lean out on your whole body weight on your harness to get the stretcher in on your own. Okay. And I said to the pilot, I, I think I need to have a bit of a practice at this. So we went into a 20 foot hover, had a practice, sweet, go up. And I thought to myself, you know, you know how you do, whatever you do, don't look down. <laughs> so I get this guy and I'm winching him. And I get him up to the skid and everything. And it's all going good because it's a manual boom. And just as I did that, I sort of dropped my head. And of course, we're at 4,000 feet, even though he was only whatever off the ground. But then the, the terrain, and I looked, the way I looked at it, there's like 2,000 feet underneath me. And I just go, oh, holy shit. <laughs> if I fall now, I'm dead. And all this is going through you. Yeah. <laughs> you like yeah. So, are, you, uh, are you afraid of heights? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, heights, blood, and uh, what's, what's the other one? Yeah. I, and you're flying I, helicopters, I, hanging out the side of them, and yeah. dealing with patients. Awesome. Yeah, no, no, I don't I don't really suffer too much with heights. I actually, to be fair, I suffer more climbing a ladder, um, you know, just up a ladder to do something at home. I, I, that scares me more than anything because 
I know if you slip, it's not going to end well, but in a helicopter, I'll quite happily stand out on the skin at 100 feet, 150 feet. It was more that I just looked down and the terrain sloped away. But yeah, so the mountain, the mountain stuff can be very, can be very, very interesting work. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'd get quite a high percentage um, of that here, more so than the water. Um, but even, you know, even with our bush, New Zealand bush is so dense in places, trying to find people or trying to find, you know, the track that they're on and all this sort of thing. And it's, I wouldn't say it's a bit of an art, but it's certainly something that takes a while to, to, to be able to visually search while you're moving, looking down and through the canopy and being able to shift your gaze and look up and do all that sort of thing, all multitasking yeah. at the same time, to look for something there that you might just spot a glimmer of just for a second and go, whoa, got him, or back again. And even our guys, you know, going in in red overalls and white helmets, they can be really, really hard to find. They can be super hard to find because their bush is just so dense. And, you know, and as you know, with horsing, you only need sort of a couple of square metres to be able to get anybody in a route. Right. You don't need a massive area, but it's trying to find them can be the... Yeah, the, the, especially when you have a, a thick canopy on top, you know, a double, yeah. triple canopy, and you're like, oh, God. You've only got to be slightly on the wrong angle when you don't see them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Dang, man. Yeah, so... I know. <laughs> we'll I like here. it. I, I we'll like it. Well, we, yeah. had a, we had a dinner time, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm impressed. I, like I said, I mean, you guys have done, even Deeks, you know, uh, grabbing the lady that uh, had the dolphin jump on her, you know. I mean, you guys get some really crazy stuff out there. So. Well, we're crazy Kiwis, you know. We're out there, people. <laughs> we live on the water. We, ah. we the it's, just, it's just part of New Zealand life, you know. It's not. Uh, you know the, the dolphin is obviously purely a one-off yeah happen. that was that was a random but um the rest of what we do that's just is people out doing doing what they do you know that's yeah yeah and, and you guys just go help them out when they get in trouble yeah yeah i yeah, like it do. yeah I like and, it. and all sorts of weathers and bits and pieces like everybody around the world yeah. and these industries do you know it's all part and parcel of it um the big thing is of course is just keeping yourself safe as a crew and, yeah. and making sure you can do it. Yeah. So you've been touching on that quite a bit. So I, I, I kind of turn the floor over to you for any advice you would give anybody, um, you know, words of wisdom you would pass on to, uh, yeah. you know, younger guys. And again, you talked a lot about CRM, so I'm on board with you. Um, but if there's anything else you want to pass on to anybody, I'm all ears. Yeah, I, I, do, I, do go, I do go on and on about it because I've seen it work and I've lived it. And I've watched other people live it and I know that it works. If it's conducted properly and everybody buys in and you leave your ego in your locker, um, you'll you'll come out of it better. I think the, the big things for me is, is the CRM side of things and maintaining your own high professional standard. So that complacency shouldn't be in there. That, um, you know, it'd be very easy for me just to go to work and go, oh yeah, it's a winch. <laughs> Yeah. but I don't I, I do the same thing all the time I use the same pattern the same technique I, I make sure everything's correct and I have a, a high personal standard that I expect anyone that I train to try and come to as well in the same vein that my instructors in the 80s did to me that yeah. was the bar you're here get yourself to here if you don't get to here you're, you're ineffective so maintaining that um, having a, a really good situational awareness of what's going around and looking for change 
in terms of weather or um, the, the task in itself. Uh, uh, another one I did with, with a helicopter crash, by the end of the day, we'd been there all day. We did a, a number of voice spring bodies out and bits and pieces. And then right at the end, they went, oh, we want you to winch the engine out. And I remember saying to the, the pilot and, and medic, we need to stop and have a think about this because this is not what we were here to do. Yeah. We've done what we were here to do. So we went and did it, but it's just that little situation where they're going, yeah, it's getting late in the day, we're getting a bit tired. It doesn't matter whether the engine comes out today or tomorrow. It's just right. Leaving. Now we're pieces and parts. and Yeah. 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 So we yeah. Having that. And the other one I've heard for years, and I'm a big fan of it as well, is it's not your emergency. Oh, I love that one. I love it. Emergency. Their emergency is not your emergency. Don't Correct. make yourself an emergency. Correct. Yeah, um, you're you're going to help. Remember that. I've I've had my own emergencies. Yeah. <laughs> and, <you know, laughs> and they're not fun. They're not fun. But the thing is that it's it's you know like somebody in the water is in the water, and you're going to do everything you can to get there. The reason you're going to be able to get there and help them is because you keep yourself controlled and calm and go, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to put Jason into the water. He's going to do whatever technique and he's going to grab the guy and I'm going to hoist him out and we're back for bare metals. And if you, you can keep that in your brain, this is my job and this is what I'm required to do. When it goes wrong, right now, what am I going to do? Yep. Um, you know, I, I have a vivid, vivid recollection of a, a boat sinking as we circled around it. They were sitting on the back. 10 seconds later, I think, whoop, I was like, oh, that wasn't the plan. So their emergency was not mine. I'm still flying around in the helicopter. Yeah, around the top. totally fine. That dumb and happy. Right, yeah. so now what are we going to do? I'm going to send this guy in and we're going to wet winch these two people out, which is what we did. So, yeah, I think that's a big one is to not not draw yourself into, oh, they're a status one or they're they're in cardiac arrest. We need to get there, and there's defibs and pads and <laughs> everything. Whole helicopters flying yeah. with medical stuff, and yeah, yeah. I need um, these darts. What are you doing? <laughs> it's, it's it's not our emergency. And these right. people, as I'm sure, um, and you know, for you as a rescue swimmer or whatever, they're they've got an expectation of you, and their expectation of my word is that you're going to turn up as a professional unit and help them. That's yes. their expectation. My yep. expectation is you stay there until we can get there and then we'll give you whatever uh, help we can. So it's not, it's not your emergency. I really like that. As a weather, you're flying with the MVG and the weather's crap, go home. Yeah. Go home. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it, it, it's, it's hard for, I, I know that's hard for people that are listening to because they're like, really? You know, you're, yeah. you're just going to leave me out there? Well, we don't want to, okay? It's not, we are on standby because we want to come get you. We want to come help you. That's our job. But like, if I can't get to you and now we have an accident, we're, we're, we crash. Now all of a sudden we got two accidents that we got to deal with. And you know, that didn't help anybody. So, 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 our, so our guy in my scenario, he got uh, winched out at midday the next day when the weather cleared. Yeah. And he, and he was probably perfectly fine. It was, yeah. yeah. Well, not literally, but yeah. Well, yeah. I sorry. Yeah, he was. He lived. He lived to tell another tale another day. You know, um, there's actually a great story with the U.S. Coast Guard out of Humboldt Bay, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to go into too many details because I don't want to mess anything up. But the short version is, the beacon went off, uh, sailboat in distress. They're 
stuck outside. They were getting rock and roll and they're near the shore. Like he was complaining that he was getting beat up against the shore and he needed to get off the ship because it was breaking apart. Helicopter goes in, weather's too bad. They make a pass. They can't get down. Pilot says, Hey, we're going to try it one more time. I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. The air crew decided let's try one more time. Again, I, I don't know the details of all of that, but so they go in to try a lower pass. They still can't do it. They go to try to climb out thinking they're going to go West because they're going to go away from any of all the mountains. They impact the mountain and kill the whole crew. The next day they go out, the guy that was on the boat that was calling, you know, Mayday is still fat, dumb and happy. And they pulled them off the next day when the weather was a little bit better. So, so you know, a, that's a very seasoned pilot that I worked with about a hundred years ago. <laughs> he goes, everybody dies in the piss and rain, but they get buried in the sun. Yeah. That, oh, true statement. God, that's such a true statement. Very rarely one. do we get called out when it's clear blue 22. We're getting called out and shit is going sideways. It's, it's, a good, it's a good one to have in the back of your head when you go flying a ship weather. Yeah. You die in the piss and rain, but you'll be buried in the sun. Yeah. We need to be here. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I actually talked about it with some of the guys um, up in Ireland as well. You know, they talked about a case where a guy had fallen off a cliff and was obviously deceased. Weather was bad. It was like, the, the guy's already dead. We're not, yep. we're not doing anybody any good right now trying to get recover a dead body. Let's go back in the morning when the weather's better and go get and retrieve for the family, which I'm all about as well. But yeah. once you're dead, you can't get more dead. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, so, and, and I want everybody to know, like we are doing everything we can to come get you. That's what we're training to do. But, but you have to realize that there are limitations. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway ernie this has been amazing I, I love talking to you guys down in new zealand i can't wait to get down there to hang out with you guys in person it's gonna be awesome cool. so, you'd, you'd love it you'd absolutely love it I, you might not get me out of there <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> with all the pictures that deke sends me god i'm never gonna leave <laughs> the gate open, opens that far to come in but it goes that far to go out oh yeah is that <laughs> <laughs> don't let it hit you on the way off <laughs> oh Ernie I love it dude we will be in touch again thank you so much for coming on and, and just telling me stories man this has been amazing so I appreciate it I hope people get something out of it rather than just it's not a story time I hope they they, they get something out of it and it um, doesn't matter what it is just takes some little nugget and use it later on just a piece I'm all about it I love it well, thanks again, my friend. I appreciate it. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute and like my daughters like to tell me, like and subscribe. Oh, yeah. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story that they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you as a guest. Or if you have any questions about any of the rescues or anything else that we talk about here on this podcast, send me an email, therealrescue at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q at gmail.com. You can also check us out on our Facebook and Instagram page at The Real Rescue. That's at T-H-E 
R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. I also want to give a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember that when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>